The White House has 60 minutes left to weigh in on one of the most controversial border policies of our time. The lead starts right now. The U.S. Supreme Court's deadline quickly approaching TikTok. Will the Biden administration proceed with its plans to lift a border policy that previously allowed the government to expel immigrants at the border quickly? Only one hour left to respond to an emergency appeal. Plus, only CNN traveling to the dangerous post of Snake Island, littered with landmines. See where Ukraine's first major show of defiance to, quote, Russian warship, go F yourself, set the tone for the last 10 months of war. And the triple threat of viruses disrupting holiday plans. And with so many kids getting sick, big pharmacies are putting new limits on medicine to help relieve their pain. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper. The clock is tick, tick, ticking. The White House must respond by the end of the hour to the U.S. Supreme Court temporarily keeping Title 42 in place. Title 42 is the pandemic policy that currently allows border agents to quickly expel asylum seekers. The Trump-era rule was set to expire tomorrow, but Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, extended the policy to give the court more time to hear a complaint from Republican-led states. In Mexico, thousands of migrants are hoping if Title 42 is lifted, they will have a better chance of being granted asylum status in the U.S. But for U.S. border cities, lifting Title 42 would likely bring an even greater influx of migrants, as these cities are already struggling to support the thousands of people crossing each day, desperate for a new life in the U.S. Shelters are packed, supplies are running out, migrants are sleeping in the freezing streets. CNN's David Culver and Ed Lavendera are monitoring the situation from both sides of the border. We're going to start with Ed in El Paso, where city officials are bracing for thousands of migrants to arrive every day, stretching already thin resources even more. Just hours before sunrise, Texas National Guard soldiers and Texas state troopers constructed a nearly mile-long fence covered in razor wire along the Rio Grande in the very spot where federal border patrol agents started processing thousands of migrants in the last week. The Texas military department says the National Guard did not alert the border patrol or local officials that this fence would be constructed. On Monday, El Paso officials said National Guard soldiers would primarily focus on humanitarian efforts and with security of migrants who were already in the city, not with deterrent efforts. The state is preparing resources. They are relocating them to El Paso. They are are not activated anything other than security. So at this time, it's for the what-ifs. El Paso County Judge Ricardo Samaniego says the newly installed fence and razor wire is a political stunt and a misuse of resources at a critical time. Uh, Standing on the border and putting barbed wire and fences is not what we need. We're the epicenter right now of migration, and you've got the governor not calling uh, the mayor and myself. But this is the kind of optics and strategy that Texas Governor Greg Abbott has long supported. The Republican governor has repeatedly criticized the Biden administration for not doing enough to secure the border. But the newly installed fence isn't stopping migrants. CNN captured these images just a few hours after the fence went up of a group of four migrants crawling through the razor wire despite warnings from border agents. They were taken into custody. And who's got the keys to that? 
As the uncertainty of what will happen with Title 42 looms over this border city, local officials and migrant advocates say they will continue preparing as if the public health rule that was used during the pandemic to block migrants from entering the U.S. some 2.5 million times will be lifted. But those leading the humanitarian efforts like Ruben Garcia are frustrated. Garcia runs the Migrant Shelter Annunciation House and has served migrants for more than 40 years in El Paso. Right now, the federal and the state government are fighting with each other. So they're not working together, they're fighting. One of the reasons we face moments like this is because our political leadership does not sit down to work out you know, comprehensive reform that takes into account the phenomena of refugees. And Jake, the apprehension numbers that were part of this recent surge here in the El Paso areas have declined dramatically in the last few days. And that is why authorities here now say they're focused on what is going to happen with Title 42 and if it's lifted. Jake? Right, Ed Lavendera in El Paso. CNN's David Culver is on the ground on the Mexican side of the border in Ciudad Juarez. And David, you're seeing a different protocol for migrants trying to cross into the U.S., today after that fence was put up. What's happening? That mobilization, Jake, changed everything overnight. And and to be the only ones here at 4.30 in the morning local time and to watch that play out and to see the Humvee, a convoy of dozens of vehicles come our direction. And at the same time, you had migrants who were lined up on the U.S. side of the Rio Grande, where those folks are right now, and they were camped out, had fires going. They were sent up to be processed and told if they didn't want to be processed, they had to go back over to this side into Mexico. And then we saw them put up the barbed wire and have established now this barricade. And you can see what's happened here is a lot of the folks are still finding ways to cross, not the usual crossing that they were doing in days past. Instead, they're going over another direction of the Rio Grande. They're getting to this spot right here. Families sitting there now for hours. And there seems to be this false hope that, that perhaps it's imminent, that things are going to change. A lot of people still have, Jake, the 21st in mind as the day that Title 42 will lift. And even as they've learned from us that there's now a freeze on that and that it is still in place. And as of now, no plans to change that. Well, for them, they're still holding on to hope and now just waiting it out. David, do the migrants know about the back and forth with Title 42 that's playing out in the U.S. today? Or are they that aware? I mean, I know they have social media and, and some, in some cases, you know, iPhones, etc. Right. So it's interesting. They're not following, for the most part, the back and forth in Washington, but they are aware of when certain news headlines break. For example, when the chief justice froze Title 42 and, and decided to keep it in place. They were aware of that, but they don't really fully understand. And, and to be honest, a lot of folks on both sides of the border don't understand how it trickles down and how it's going to impact them. So they're still putting themselves in this position of thinking that perhaps it's going to change and they'll be allowed in. But the biggest fear for them and, and the reason a lot of them have waited for that 21st is that they'll get in and then they'll be immediately expelled under Title 42 and not expelled right back here to Ciudad Juarez, but to places much farther and much more dangerous. That is the real concern, Jake. All right, David Culver, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman Adriano Espaillat from New York. He's the first formerly undocumented immigrant to serve as a member of U.S. Congress. Congressman, thanks for joining us. So the White House has uh, the rest of the hour in which they need to respond to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to keep Title 42 in place temporarily. But 
even if Title 42 is formally extended by the court in a ruling, that too would most likely only be a temporary extension. How do you think the Biden administration and Congress should deal with this influx of migrants at the border, these asylum seekers? That's correct, Jake. Uh, Title 42 was put forward as a public health policy, not an immigration policy, and certainly not immigration reform. So this doesn't necessarily take care of the problem. Uh, you know, the hemisphere is facing a crisis of democracy. These, these migrants, these uh, asylum seekers are coming from Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. These are authoritarian regimes, and they're fleeing uh, political violence. Uh, in some cases, they're fleeing natural disasters. So we really have to address uh, what's going on in the hemisphere politically. I think we've uh, fallen back and we sort of like fell asleep at the wheel and things have really uh, changed in the hemisphere in the last 10, 15 years. But locally, uh, you know, we just passed, uh, we're getting ready to pass an omnibus bill that has $800 million that will assist some of the local cities with food and shelter. I think that's important that we have the capacity to uh, address this at the municipality level. We're getting ready to do that. Uh, eventually, the fix is comprehensive immigration reform, but uh, that, that, that's weaponized, Jake. It's never, it's never used for good purposes. It's used to score political points and gain votes during election time. Our system's so broken, I'm just thinking about I, when I interviewed outgoing Republican governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, uh, he was talking about uh, how there's a tremendous labor shortage in Massachusetts, and he wants these migrants who are coming for a better life to be able to come to Massachusetts and work. But the way the laws are written, they're delayed at least a year and a half before they're even able to do that. It just none of this makes any sense. Anywhere you go, you will hear uh, that small businesses and folks across the country need uh, workers. You know, this uh, Christmas holiday party that I had, you know, a couple of hundred uh, migrants, uh, asylum seekers went to eat there. They were hungry. They're in our city already, and they want to work. What right. they told me is that they want to work. So we should be able to inject the economy with some oxygen, and that's called immigration reform. Yeah, but it's just so like, the government's going to provide them with food and shelter, and that's great. I, that's a humanitarian gesture. But the same government has laws that won't let these people work, even though they want to. You're a uh, New York congressman. New York has seen the arrival of more than 30,000 migrants and has, to, has had to open 60, 60 emergency shelters to handle the influx. I understand a lot of the money in this omnibus bill is going to go to New York. Tell us what you're hearing and seeing in your district. Well, uh, the city is concerned, obviously, as they should. Uh, this is a fast and rapid uh, influx of families with children. Yesterday, I went to a school district that has 500 families, new uh, families attending. The kids are attending the school there. So, this is a load on, obviously, uh, on, on the school system there and on our city. Uh, but again, you know, the economy needs a shot in the arm. Let's get these people to work. Let's give them an opportunity. Let's process them. Uh, they're asylum seekers, right? They're fleeing these countries, uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba. Uh, in the past, we allow people from Cuba and, and those types of governments to come in. Let's give them a shot. Democratic Congressman uh, Adriano Espaillat of New York, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Appreciate it. Merry thank you. Christmas. Feliz Navidad. Thank you. Feliz Coming Navidad. up, the documents Donald Trump has been trying to hide for years. Now congressional Democrats have their hands on them. The discussion right now over what to do with his tax returns. Plus, joining me this hour, one of the most powerful names in the U.S. government. 
Joe Manchin, his take on next year's agenda. Will he follow the lead of Senator Kirsten Sinema, independent of Arizona, and leave the Democratic Party? Stay with us. Topping our politics lead today, just one day after the January 6th Select House Committee referred former President Donald Trump to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution on four different charges. Right now, another House committee is meeting behind closed doors, digging into the tax returns that Donald Trump spent years desperately trying to keep out of public view. CNN Sarah Murray is looking at the fallout from yesterday's bombshell referrals, but I want to start with CNN's Lauren Fox. Lauren, as we speak, lawmakers are weighing what to do with Trump's tax returns. What do we know about their discussion so far? Yeah, Jake, they are actually in the room right behind me, and they're having this deliberation. They've been in there for about an hour now having this closed-door discussion, and they're in an executive session, which means we don't have much insight into what is happening inside the room. But what we do know is they're discussing whether or not to release any of this information related to former President Donald Trump's tax returns. That, of course, is something that House Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal fought for in court for years to get access to. He's had access to this information now for about a month. Members of the committee have had access to it for a couple of days now, looking over this information, getting ready for this meeting. We know that once they are ready to vote, they will come out of executive session and we will see what they vote on in public, Jake. We expect that that could come in the next hour or two. Sarah, the Justice Department has been waiting for the evidence and the transcripts from the House committee. I understand you have some new information on that. Yeah, they've been waiting for months. They have asked repeatedly for the January 6th committee to begin handing over transcripts. And we are learning, our team, that that process has begun, that the select committee has already begun handing over these transcripts to the Justice Department. Again, this is important for DOJ's investigation. It's important because they already have a number of folks who are going to trial and they want this evidence. They want to be able to follow up on what the House committee has has already obtained. You know, we are going to get some of these transcripts, hopefully public, starting on Wednesday. But the committee has said essentially when it comes to the public. They'll trickle out between now and the end of the year, Jake. Lauren, if Democrats vote to release any of Trump's tax information, how are Republicans planning to respond? Yeah, Republicans really already readying that response, Jake. They actually held a press conference right before members went in for this executive session, railing against Democrats, saying if they release any information, that this is a slippery slope, that any taxpayer's information could become public. They're really focusing less on former President Donald Trump and the fact that he was a public figure and more on what this means for the future of the committee. We should note, though, there is some precedent for this tax information to be released in this way. Remember back when there was the investigation into IRS in 2014 and Lois Lerner, the committee, after several months of deliberations and investigation, did release some sensitive tax information using this same statute, Jake. So that's important context to remember. Sarah, how are Republicans responding to the criminal referrals uh, for Donald Trump from the January 6th committee to the Justice Department? Well, you know, look, we've seen from the Republicans that were on that referral list, essentially a lot of downplaying, saying, you know, the referrals don't mean anything. It's nothing different from, you know, an average American making these referrals. But look, I think what Republicans are looking forward to from the committee is also, frankly, the release of these transcripts. They want to be able to dig through them, look for any exculpatory evidence, any evidence that they might be able to to point to as a defense of the former president. And, you know, we've heard Kevin McCarthy say they want to dig into any potential security failures that may have led to the attack on the Capitol. So you can bet that there are going to be Republicans that are digging through transcripts for anything that points to that as well. All right, Sarah Murray and Lauren Fox, thanks so much. Let's bring in 
Democratic Governor Tom Wolf of Pennsylvania, who is leaving office, having been term limited out, he'll be replaced by Josh Shapiro in January. Governor Wolf, good to see you. Um, so these election lies uh, and the whole insurrection was very relevant to your Commonwealth. Two thirds of House Republicans voted to disenfranchise Pennsylvania on January 6, 2021. What harm did that do to politics in the Keystone State or what effect did it have? Well, it, I'm not sure. The, the uh, Pennsylvania was a real outlier in the election. I know the conventional wisdom was that midterm elections are always bad for the party in the White House. Um, but it wasn't as bad around the country as people thought. But it was really good in Pennsylvania. I mean, we had to pick up of the U.S. senator, obviously. The, the governor-elect uh, won by a very comfortable margin. The U.S. senator won by a comfortable mar- uh, margin. We picked up over 20 seats in the state house, picked up a seat in the, in the state senate. I mean, uh, Pennsylvania is, is, is really uh, put to a lie, I guess, the, uh, the idea that, that the party in power does poorly in a, uh, in a midterm, off, uh, midterm election. Do you attribute that to the fact that so many House Republicans and so many Republicans in Pennsylvania were actually outwardly anti-democracy? I mean, every single House Republican from Pennsylvania, except for one, Fitzpatrick, voted to disenfranchise their own citizens, although I should note, only on the presidential ballot. They did not vote to invalidate their own elections on the same ballots on the same day. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, I think voters in Pennsylvania simply voted uh, for the party they thought was a party of adults, um, the party that was not peddling nonsense. I mean, I, I've been governor for eight years, and, and uh, I think my administration has been marked by honesty, people like integrity. People like good policies, record investments in education, criminal justice reform, uh, expanded Medicaid, and and done all this in a very fiscally responsible way without raising any taxes. We have um, surpluses and and lots of money in our rainy day fund. So I think people were actually voting um, for the adults in the room, and and that's what happened in Pennsylvania. And I think that's what could happen elsewhere if our party actually decides that's the strategy. Um, Republican Doug Mastriano um, obviously talked about the big lie uh, quite a bit. Uh, He also dabbled in what to many critics seemed like dog whistles that were anti-Semitic in nature, going after Josh Shapiro, the attorney general who will be the next governor of Pennsylvania, going after him for having attended and sending his kids to a, a private Jewish day school, which in the spirit of full disclosure, I should acknowledge, I attended as well, and it was not the elite uh, school that uh, Mastriano uh, described. Do you think that played any role? And were you surprised to see a statewide candidate in Pennsylvania traffic in in that kind of hatred? No, I was was really happy. I mean, that's what a lot of those folks are doing these days. And I was really happy to see Pennsylvanians responded by giving Josh Shapiro a huge margin of victory. What's the toughest lesson you learned as governor? You, you were governor for eight years. You're still governor, but you're, you're on your way out. What's the toughest lesson you learned? Maybe even a lesson you learned the hard way? Well, no, I, I, I think you, you, the, the lesson is that, that you actually do the right thing. You, 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 uh, uh, you have uh, an honest administration. You actually do things that, actually, that help people. Those folks living down the street or down the road. Uh, and you do it in a fiscally responsible way. Uh, and, and you stand up for what you believe in. I have vetoed more bills than any governor in, in 50 years in Pennsylvania. None have been overridden. And, and I, I have stood 
tall for, for my values and we've still gotten things done. That's what a democracy is. Pennsylvania's rewarded that version of democracy with their votes uh, in the 2022 elections. What's your best advice for Josh Shapiro, your successor? My best advice is, uh, and I have already given this to him, uh, is, is keep trying to make our government in Pennsylvania do a better and better and better job of serving the people of Pennsylvania. Democratic Governor Tom Wolf of the great Keystone State, good to see you. Thank you so much. What are you going to do next? Do you know? Thank you. Yes, read, eat, and sleep. Okay. Well, I know you're capable of all three. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. <laughs> Coming up next, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Google, the failed attempt to rein in the monopolies of big tech as major platforms get away with squeezing out the little guys. Who's to blame? Stay with us. A commentary now in our tech lead. In some ways, it could be more telling what congressional leaders left out of the massive $1.7 trillion spending bill unveiled today than what they included. I'm thinking specifically of two pieces of bipartisan antitrust legislation to try to rein in big tech monopolies. One of the bills was bipartisan from Senators Amy Klobuchar and Chuck Grassley. It would stop companies such as Amazon, Apple, Meta, and Google, which critics say are all clearly monopolies, from giving preference to their own products and burying other products. Right now, you have these major platforms. Google has 90% of the search engine market. And we don't bemoan them success. We want them to be successful. But what happens with monopolies is they start hurting small guys. Now, the Klobuchar-Grassley bill passed the Senate Judiciary Committee with a 16-to-6 vote. That was almost a year ago. A House version passed the House Judiciary Committee in 2021. European countries are right now working on getting some of these protections for consumers and small business people. There's another bill that's from Senators Richard Blumenthal and Marsha Blackburn that would loosen the stranglehold that companies such as Apple and Google have when it comes to apps. That stranglehold allows them to crush competition. Did you know, for instance, that Apple has blocked third-party app stores from iPhones? You can only use their app store. Did you know that Apple requires apps use Apple's own rather pricey payment system for any in-app purchase? The legislation from Blackburn and Blumenthal to rein in Apple's behavior on apps was voted out of the Senate Judiciary Committee by a vote of 20 to 2 in February. But neither of these bills even got a vote on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And similar bills in the House were also denied votes on the floor of the House. The App Store bill on the House didn't even get marked up in its committee. Why? Well, often leaders deny the opportunity for votes for bills that they're afraid will actually pass. And sources familiar with this fight tell me that congressional leaders, Democrats and Republicans, seemed eager to run out the clock. Now, it might be cynical to note the number of relatives of members of Congress, not to mention former top staffers, who have coincidentally found lucrative jobs in the tech sector. But it's certainly relevant to observe that these tech companies represent one of the biggest sources of campaign funds for the Democratic Party, which fancies itself as standing up for the little guy against corporate behemoths, though in this case, not so much. 
It might also be worth observing that despite all the anti-big tech rhetoric we hear from Republicans who are currently casting themselves as populists, very few Republicans, Grassley, Blackburn, and Congressman Ken Buck accepted, seem at all interested in standing up to monopolies. Buck recently speculated about why the bills were never brought to the floor for a House vote. There are so many uh, reasons, in fact, in the month of July, 36 million reasons why antitrust bills won't pass. That's how much money these companies spent on lobbying in individual districts uh, around the country. For these two bills, this was a murder on the Orient Express type slaughter. Everyone's fingerprints are on the knife. Indeed, he was murdered. God, murder here. God rest his soul. The fingerprints of leaders Schumer and McConnell, Speaker Pelosi, Leader McCarthy, plus a bunch of California House Democrats who represent big tech. These were two pieces of legislation that would try to rein in big tech monopolies. They would push competition, they would benefit consumers, and they are, as of now, dead. One of our New Year's resolutions here at The Lead is to try to pay more attention to the efforts to rein in these monopolies in 2023, which hits us all where we live, on our phones and our computers. Elon Musk might be getting all the headlines for his mercurial Twitter trolling and thirst for MAGA clicks, but these big tech monopolies and their anti-competition, dare I say, anti-American way that they govern their businesses, I'm not talking about Twitter. I'm talking about Apple, Google, Amazon. What they're doing, that's arguably a more important and significant story. So who's to blame for the missed opportunity to reign in big tech monopolies? I'm going to ask one of the most influential names in the U.S. Senate, Senator Joe Manchin. He joins me next. In our politics lead in the wee hours of the morning, congressional leaders unveiled their massive and long-awaited $1.7 trillion trillion dollar government funding bill. But with a shutdown looming this Friday, lawmakers have very little time to review the legislative text, which runs more than 4,000 pages long. Let's bring in Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He's a member of the Appropriations uh, Committee. Uh, Senator, uh, thanks for joining us. I, I want to ask you, because one of the things that was left out of the spending bill are two widely supported bipartisan antitrust bills that would rein in big tech monopolies like Apple and Google. Neither bill was given a vote on the Senate or the House floor which Democrats control. I'll point out that one of the biggest sources for campaign funds for Democrats these days is big tech. Why was this legislation left out that would protect consumers and small businessmen? There's no excuse at all, Jake. None at all. So to anyone trying to give you an excuse, I can't. It should have been. That's something we all talked about from redoing Section 230 on down. But uh, why that was done, I have no clue whatsoever. I cannot give you an answer on that. We knew a lot of the stuff. We've been working on things for a whole year, Jake. So we had a lot of uh, input on a lot of the things that's been in there, and it's gone through the Appropriations Committee when we were working together. But uh, at the end there, it's an awful lot comes together. I, I can say that, but why some things are taken out and four corners have to agree, Democrats and Republicans, whether it be McConnell or whether it be uh, uh, Senator Schumer or whether it be uh, Nancy or uh, Kevin on the, other, on the House side. One thing that is in the massive uh, bill uh, I know you're happy about is uh, the legislation to reform the Electoral Count Act. It yes. would raise the threshold needed to challenge presidential electors. Right now, it only requires one lawmaker in the House and one in the Senate. 
Are you satisfied these changes are enough to prevent any future attempts to well, overturn election results? Well, basically, it'll stop what happened to us January the 6th. That was our main, court, uh, our main uh, call, and that's what we addressed. Uh, everyone had a different idea how to approach that, Jake. Someone to go further, someone to do a lot more. I understand that. And the House did a lot more of what they sent over. But basically working in a bipartisan way that we have to, working uh, in the Senate, we came up with something that addressed, first of all, being totally ceremonial so a vice president can never be caught in that situation again. Next of all, just one uh, congressperson or one senator couldn't hold up a whole uh, counting process for one state. Now it takes 20 percent or 86 congresspeople to say, we think the state of XYZ was wrong and we think the count was wrong and we contest that. And you had to have 20 senators to confirm it. So that puts a whole other wrinkle into it and I think adds more to an oversight and, and democracy, if you will. And next of all, the electoral uh, college, those people, the electors, have to be chosen before the election, not afterwards to try to get people that you think is going to go along with you. And uh, then we have a court, uh, accelerated court proceedings. So there's the things that have stopped what happened January the 6th. There's still a lot more to do, but you remember, we have states' rights also. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw, but Kevin McCarthy, who is really trying to get the votes to become speaker, he said that if any Republicans in the Senate vote for this omnibus spending bill, $1.7 trillion, then their legislative priorities will not be heard in the House when he is speaker. Uh, Mitt Romney called that uh, silliness. W- what do you think of it? I think Mitt described it pretty well. <laughs> yeah, pretty well. I mean, this is not a vindictive type of thing that we're not, in co- we're not in high school or college and playing games back and forth. This is real life. And with that being said, Kevin is fighting, I understand, for his political life over there. Wish him well. Don't know how that's going to come out. We have no input on that whatsoever. But to say you're going to stop everything and hold things hostage if we do things that we think is best for our country on our side, and we have Democrats and Republicans both agreeing, then it's something to be worked out when the two get together, both sides, the bicameral. That's why we have a bicameral uh, body here, uh, the House and the Senate. So saying that one's going to put pressure and control the other, and if you do that, forget your legislation's dead, that's not leadership. Another provision left out of the omnibus spending bill was the bill to protect Afghan allies who served with American troops in Afghanistan. Um, If that comes up as an amendment, would you vote for it? Absolutely. That's a big mistake. We had people risking their lives and their families' lives, and there was promises made. And we have people that basically, when we go into areas of conflict, when we have our troops and and the lives of our troops in danger, and we have someone willing to protect our troops and work with us to try to give us the best chance of survival and success, and we can at least make sure that we keep them protected, yes, I would vote for that. The fate of Title 42 is up in the air right now as the U.S. grapples with the crisis on the border. Congress has failed to deal with the border for decades, as I don't need to tell you. Is there any kind of bipartisan agreement that can be made to solve this? Uh, And why isn't it happening yet? I think there is. I think there's some breakthrough here. And, and, uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of conversations going on. And I understand the administration, uh, under the leadership of uh, Secretary Mayorkas, working uh, uh, on behalf of of the administration, has some uh, things that they've been talking about, uh, and I'm thinking that uh, the group that we put together, been John Cornyn and myself, myself from the Senate, and we have uh, Congressman Gonzalez and uh, Cong- Congressman Cuellar, who are Congress- Congressman Cuellar and John Cornyn are right on the front lines in Texas, so they know it better than anybody else. But there are things that they believe that can be done. They've been exchanging those ideas back and forth. We've written a letter. 42 must be basically enforced 
and continued on, and not just in the, uh, uh, the realm of, uh, of the pandemic, uh, but also in the realm of security. We have to be able to secure our borders. There's never going to be, Jake, meaningful, meaningful uh, immigration reform until we get uh, committed to, uh, to securing our border. You have to have a secure border. There have to be points of entry. There have to make, make sure that people go through the proper, proper vetting process. And those are all things that we can do, but until you secure that border, and that seems to be where the big rub is, how secured should it be, what should you secure it? It's gonna take everything. The 2013 bill is still the best piece of legislation that we've ever worked on in immigration. And we couldn't get a vote in the, in the House at that time. And it's a shame that that never happened because we passed it bipartisan over 68 votes in the Senate. Yeah. And it basically was all geared around. You couldn't have anybody becoming a U.S. citizen until the border was deemed secure. Yeah. Um, after Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema announced she was uh, leaving the Democratic Party in an interview with me about a week and a half ago, you later said in an interview that you'll let us know what you're going to decide to do. So well, I'll ask you, do you, do you, do you intend to remain a, a member of the Jake, Democratic I Party? I don't think there's anyone more independent than me and uh, the way I've been voting in my entire life over 40 years. Uh, I'm not a Washington Democrat. and I have a lot of good friends who aren't Washington Republicans. This party tribal mentality is killing our country. People are sick and tired of it. I respect Kirsten's decision. God bless her. She made her decision, and she'll have, she gets, she's very articulate in the way she, she's uh, pointed out of why she did what she did. And uh, I think that basically I'll make my decision whenever I make a decision, or if I do make a decision, I'll do it, and I'm not in any hurry to do that. So, uh, you know, the bottom line is I'm not changing how I vote. I'm not changing how I approach a problem. If my Republican colleagues have a good idea, I'm for it. I can go home and explain it. If the Democrats have a good idea, I can support that also. And I'm not afraid to say I can't support something that makes no sense at all to the Democrats or Republicans. So just to, people have gotten so, it's, it's what team are you on? I'm on one team. I'm on the American team. I would like to think we're all on the same side. We just have different branches, that's all. But the same side is the American side. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Merry Christmas, sir. Good to see you as always. Thank you, Jake. Always good to be with you. Parents, heads up. The major pain you might find at the pharmacy if your kids get sick over the holiday break. That's next. In our health lead, tis the season for sickness. Cases of the flu and RSV and COVID are all still high in the U.S. and they're not going away just yet. The trifecta of illnesses is Colliding with the holidays, raising concerns that more Americans will get sick as they gather indoors or travel for family events. CNN's Dr. Tara Narula joins us now. Tara, what can people do to keep these viruses from ruining their holiday plans? As someone who had Christmas of 2020 ruined by COVID, I can attest to the fact that it is not fun to be away from your family. So certainly what you want to do is think about the events you want to attend this week or next and count back by about five days. During that time, you really want to avoid large indoor unmasked crowds. If you do have to attend an event during that time, you want to wear a high quality mask like an N95. Certainly when you're going to attend an event with family in the coming weeks, you want to make sure that you're all strategizing and planning out in the same way way um, and keeping those vulnerable people in your parties safe. So if that means that you're sick and showing signs or symptoms, don't attend. Um, Other things you can think about doing, obviously staying up to date on your COVID booster, your flu shot, uh, ventilation. We can't underestimate the importance of that. So HEPA filters, open the windows, go outdoors if you live somewhere 
warm. And then finally, those rapid COVID tests to be taken right before you attend an event or at the door. These are all ways that you can think about trying to stay safe. And as we're seeing a rise uh, in the spread of these respiratory illnesses, CVS and Walgreens are now limiting how much children's pain relief medication a consumer can buy. These are widely used by parents when their kids suffer these viral infections to ease fevers and and bring comfort. How, How big of a problem is this? Right. It's certainly unnerving as a parent to not have access to these staple medications like Tylenol and ibuprofen. Now, this is not a widespread shortage. These are, again, spot shortages, but it, but it's difficult for parents when they're hunting around. And certainly in an effort to kind of increase and meet the demand and increase supply, CVS and Walgreens have initiated these changes. Um, CVS saying that you cannot buy more than two of these pain or fever reducing medications for kids, either in store or online. And Walgreens limiting it to six purchases of these medications online. They have not put a limit in store. Um, we know that, you know, sales of these drugs are up by about 65 percent compared to the previous year. So it's definitely frustrating and parents may have to search at, at smaller pharmacies. And again, you don't have to treat every fever in your child as well. So, All right, Dr. Tara Narula, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, what it's like on Ukraine's Snake Island, one of the most dangerous plots of land in the world. CNN's Will Ripley managed to get there. See his experience. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, winter does not officially start until tomorrow, but every state in the lower 48 is going to see temperatures below freezing in the coming days. And the extreme cold is expected to trigger a holiday travel nightmare later in the week. Plus, time is up for the White House to respond to the Supreme Court's decision to keep a controversial border policy in place for now. What we're learning about the Biden administration's next move on Title 42. And leading this hour, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spent the 300th day of the war visiting troops at one of the most contested battlefields in his country. President Zelensky handed out medals and visited soldiers in Bakhmut in the Donetsk region in eastern Ukraine, where Russia has focused most of their effort to take Ukrainian territory. Zelensky promised the Ukrainian soldiers he would share their gratitude with the U.S. lawmakers and President Biden for the support. But Zelensky went on to say the support is not yet enough. But first, we have some breaking news. Plans are underway for Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to visit the U.S. and visit the White House tomorrow. A source tells CNN the trip would be the first time he's left Ukraine since the beginning of Putin's brutal and unprovoked war against his country. CNN's Phil Mattingly is bringing on this story live from the White House. Phil, what might Zelensky hope to accomplish with this visit to Washington? Yeah, Jake, well, you heard what he was telling his troops on the ground earlier today. That is a message it looks like he will be able to deliver directly in person to President Biden. Right now, planning is underway for President Zelensky to visit the White House, to meet with President Biden face to face, a visit that will coincide with the announcement of a new security assistance package, a package that will include something Zelensky has long asked for. And over the course of the last several weeks, the White House and the Biden administration has moved closer to agreeing to deliver. That's a Patriot, the Patriot missile systems uh, that White House officials and the Department of Defense have been weighing over the course of the last several weeks and have been moving towards signing off on. Now, this planning is still tentative and no final decision has been made yet, but this is something that has been very closely held and has been something uh, that a very tight circle of administration officials have been working on over the course of the last several days. We do know that the administration has been moving toward 
uh, saying yes to the idea of, of sending Patriot missiles and other advanced weaponry as well, something that underscores the realities that are on, happening on the ground right now. But I think the significance of the moment uh, is also something worth pointing out. Should Zelensky appear at the White House, as you noted, it would be his first trip out of the Ukraine uh, since the invasion back in February, and it would be a trip to a steadfast ally and a president that has made clear unequivocally throughout the course of the nine months of this war that the U.S. will stand behind Ukraine in every way that it can, not just now, not just in the near term, but for as long as it takes. Up to this point, uh, the U.S. has already delivered almost $20 billion in defense assistance over the course of this war, very clearly planning to deliver more uh, in a very much uh, expanded package in terms of the type of weaponry and systems uh, that the U.S. is willing to send to the Ukrainian troops right now, Jake. Let's bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. And Oren, as Phil says, this is part of the expected announcement about the Patriot Missile Defense System, a story you first broke. Jake, no better way for President Zelensky to say thanks than to be there in person with President Biden, if that's how this plays out. Patriots are perhaps the second most significant system that the U.S. has sent Ukraine since the beginning of the war, perhaps only bested by the HIMARS that Ukraine has used so effectively. The Patriot itself is a large system that requires a large crew to operate. And as Phil pointed out, Ukraine has been asking for this for quite some time to beef up their aerial defenses. It would offer them a long-range aerial defense on top of the medium-range NASAMs and the shorter-range Stingers and those sorts of options that Ukraine already has. And that's why it's such a significant announcement and such a significant moment, even if it will take a matter of time, weeks, perhaps even months, for the training, not only on how to operate the system, but for the maintenance and logistics. Jake, I will add that we're also learning that another part of this package will be what are known as JDAMs, kits that go on, quote-unquote, <clears throat> dumb bombs to make them precision weapons that will also be included, we've learned from U.S. officials, that will add to Ukraine's capability to attack Russian, uh, Russian forces, Russian hardpoints. That also there comes with its own challenges, how to fire a U.S.-made weapon off a Soviet-era fighter. That's a challenge they've already overcome before. But with Zelensky here, the expectation he's coming, uh, certainly a, a momentous occasion in and of itself because he hasn't left Ukraine since the start of the invasion, but he'll be here for that announcement of patriots and more. All right, Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon, Phil Manningly at the White House with the breaking news. Thanks to both of you. Quote, Russian warship, go F yourself. Nearly a year after Ukrainian guard on Snake Island uttered that defiant, now famous phrase, the key island in the Black Sea remains firmly in Ukrainian hands. In an exclusive, CNN's Will Ripley and his crew are the first journalists to make the perilous trip to that island, littered with landmines and Russian wreckage. As the saying goes, whoever controls Snake Island controls the Black Sea. The safest way to get there? The Ukrainian military's inflatable speedboat. With seating for six, it's small enough to stay out of sight. We are really getting tossed around out here, but we need to take a small boat because we need to stay out of the sights of Russian reconnaissance aircraft. Safer than a helicopter, but no protection from the Black Sea's big waves, bitter cold and whipping winds, not to mention the mines. By the end of our stomach-turning journey, Snake Island's craggy cliffs are a welcome sight. Up close, a pier in pieces previews the destruction we're about to see. We enter Snake Island by climbing up a pile of half-sunken, slippery sea blocks. We're the first journalists allowed here since Ukraine recaptured Snake Island five months ago. 
Russia blanketed the island with booby traps before bailing out. The soldiers told us we need to follow in their footsteps exactly, and we need to be very careful where we step. This whole island is littered with landmines, unexploded ordnance, basically a powder keg. A powder keg with plenty of cats wandering through the wreckage of 10 brutal months of war. Not a snake in sight. On February 24th, the first day of Russia's full-scale invasion, Russia's Black Sea flagship, the Moskva, aimed its arsenal at Snake Island, demanding dozens of Ukrainian defenders surrender or die. What happened next is how legends are made. Five words seen at the time as a final act of defiance. Everyone on Snake Island presumed dead. Russian bombs raining down. The island's radio went silent. Those five words telling the Russian warship where to go. Instantly iconic. Inspiring t-shirts, postage stamps, pop songs. Ukraine later learned Snake Island's defenders were alive. Prisoners of war, some released in a POW swap earlier this year, others remain in Russian captivity. Is it intimidating to look out and see a giant Russian warship and know that you guys are a small group here? If anybody tells you it's not intimidating, he's a liar, says Fortuna, a volunteer soldier. It was chaos. The garrison here was small. Russia captured the island quickly. Taking the island back took a long time. On Snake Island, we find a graveyard of Russian weapons, the result of relentless Ukrainian attacks for several months earlier this year. This is one of Russia's most expensive anti-aircraft weapon systems. As you can see, not much use anymore. In April, Ukraine says its missiles sank the Moskva. Where did it go? The bottom of the Black Sea. A humiliated Kremlin says their flagship caught fire, sinking in stormy weather. In May, a Ukrainian drone strike on Snake Island turned this helicopter into a fireball. This is what's left of that Russian helicopter, pulverized, along with its crew of about eight people. A twisted relic of Russia's ill-fated plan to transform this remote Black Sea outpost into a permanent aircraft carrier. What's it like to live out here? We need to be on guard 24-7, Fortuna says, so we never get bored. We notice his Russian accent. Turns out Fortuna was born in Russia. He moved to Ukraine and got married before the war. Now part of a Russian volunteer corps protecting Snake Island for Ukraine. How do you feel about Russia now? For us, they're enemies, no matter what. Most of the Russian volunteer corps lived in Ukraine before the invasion, he says. We were living life, had families, good jobs. And here comes Russia attacking us. If some other country attacked us, we would fight too. Life on Snake Island means almost total isolation. Soldiers tell me the simple act of switching on a cell phone brings Russian rockets within 40 minutes. They say Russia attacked the island just last month. We are now out of time. We've been on the island just about an hour, and it's important that we get off before the waves get too big and before the Russians know we're here. The Ukrainians say Russia blew up Snake Island's historic lighthouse and museum on the site of an ancient Greek temple. Evil spirits are rumored to roam these 46 acres of rock and sand. 
bearing witness to centuries of bloodshed. Ukraine is not the first nation to control Snake Island, but vows it will be the last. Snake Island is strategically crucial to the cargo that comes in and out of this port city of Odessa, which is why Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky visited the island before the war twice by helicopter. Of course, you can't take a helicopter there now because the Russians would try to shoot it down, although if we could, it certainly would have been a lot drier and warmer. Uh, that said, Jake, uh, President Zelensky due to visit President Biden at the White House tomorrow. He was in Bakhmut today, right on the front lines. He'll be in D.C. tomorrow. Just another example of how this media-savvy Ukrainian president is seizing the moment just like he did at the beginning of the war with what happened with the soldiers on Snake Island. He broadcast their message to the nation. It united the nation and may have possibly helped change the course of the conflict early on. All right, Will Ripley in Odessa, Ukraine, after a visit to Snake Island. Thank you so much for that reporting. We just learned how the White House responded to the Supreme Court's temporary freeze on the controversial Title 42 border policy. That's next. Plus, travel could be impossible in parts of the country just in time for the holiday weekend. Why the Arctic air is to blame. Stay with us. Moments ago, the White House filed a response to the U.S. Supreme Court's order to temporarily keep Title 42 in place. Title 42 allows agents at the border to swiftly expel asylum seekers there. CNN's Jessica Schneider is here with us. Jessica, what does the White House's filing have to say? Well, so they are saying that the Supreme Court should reject the bid from Republican-led states to keep Title 42 in place. This is what we were expecting. The Supreme Court said the Biden administration and ACLU had to respond by 5 p.m. The deadline has come and gone. Now the clock begins to tick perhaps for what the Supreme Court will do here. Right now, of course, Title 42 remains in place. Uh, it was expected that it would end uh, at midnight going into Wednesday. It, that will not happen, of course. It is still in effect. And what's interesting in particular about what the government is saying here, they're saying that Supreme Court, even if you rule in our favor and allow us to end Title 42, because of all the court maneuverings over the past few days, we're still going to need more time. So it looks like even if the Supreme Court, whether they side with the Republican-led states or the government and the ACLU, it looks like Title 42 will likely be in place for another week. So that's extending it several more days here. And that's because the government is saying, hey, look, we were looking forward to this ending on Wednesday, but because the court has put a pause on ending this, We've unwound some of our efforts here. Specifically, they're saying it's a complex multi-agency undertaking to actually end Title 42. And because the Supreme Court has paused things, we need more time to regroup here. So, Jake, the bottom line on this is it is now in the Supreme Court's hands as to what happens with Title 42. But regardless, it looks like it will still be in place for, at this point, another week here. Um, and that could be even how long the Supreme Court might decide on this. And um, if they do rule in favor of the Republican-led states, that means that Title 42 would be in effect even longer than just a week. So we're going to see what the Supreme Court does. They could rule soon. They could take a while to decide here, Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. As thousands of migrants stand in line to cross into the U.S. and await the Supreme Court decision, oh, their, their final decision on what to do with uh, Title 42. CNN's Rosa Flores reports from Brownsville, Texas, on the chaos and hardship at the border. Brian and his mother left their native Venezuela full of dreams three months ago. He made it to South Texas after being processed by immigration authorities. She did not. What happened to your mother? Bueno, mi mamá. 
He says they were traveling through the Darien Gap, a mountainous jungle between Colombia and Panama. He says that he was helping his mother cross and that she grabbed a branch and then she fell down a cliff and into the river. He says that he'll never forget the look in his mother's eyes. He is one of more than 300 migrants who are processed by Border Patrol and dropped off in Brownsville every day, says migrant advocate Sergio Cordova. Our worry is, is are we going to be able to order the supplies that we need? Late Monday, the Trump-era policy, which allows immigration agents to swiftly return migrants to Mexico, was paused by the Supreme Court just days before it was scheduled to lift. The decision, easing concerns about the sudden surge of migrants at the border that's expected when the rule ends. Quite honestly, we're relieved that, that Title 42 has been extended. Uh, we were preparing for the worst. You know, we were pretty almost already to capacity in some of our locations. I'm in Brownsville, Texas, and just across the river in Matamoros, Mexico, there are thousands of migrants, mostly Venezuelans and Haitians, who are living in camps and on the streets. I've been talking to them. Hola, ¿cómo estás? What do you think about Title 42 staying in place? They're happy Title 42 is staying in place. In nearby McAllen, Texas, Border Patrol is dropping off about 450 migrants per day at this respite center, says the director, Sister Norma Pimentel. Pimentel is monitoring the anxiety that is growing across the river in Reynosa, Mexico, where there's an estimated 800 migrants in packed shelters and open-air camps, according to advocates. It's not safe to be in Mexico in the, in because of the fact that they're exposed to all the elements and exposed to all the dangers. The dangers that still haunt Brian after his mother's death. What did you see in her eyes? Miedo, tristeza. Fear, sadness. Brian says seeing his mother's photos is painful, especially this one. His mom is not in the photo. She took the picture days before she perished. And I've been text messaging with Brian. He's still on his way to New York. But I want to go straight to live drone pictures of where Brian was before he turned himself in to immigration authorities. What you're looking at there is a camp in Matamoros, Mexico. Now, this is a camp with thousands of migrants, mostly from Venezuela and Haiti. And um, uh, Jake, what I wanted to say is so long is as Title 42 remains in limbo, so do the lives of these thousands of migrants who are waiting in Mexico. All right, Rosa Flores at the U.S.-Mexico border in Brownsville, Texas specifically. Thanks so much for that report. Very sad. What started a very public spat between two of the most vocal MAGA firebrands on Capitol Hill, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Stay with us. In our politics lead, just days before government funding is set to expire, top congressional leaders unveiled a $1.7 trillion spending bill. Of course, in the middle of the night, the bipartisan bill is the result of lengthy negotiations. Many lawmakers are not happy with the final product, as well as the way the bill is being rushed through Congress. Let's go to CNN's Manu Rajar on Capitol Hill as the race to read the more than 4,000-page bill is underway. Manu, what, what are you hearing from lawmakers about this all? 
Yeah, there's a lot of criticism coming, mostly from Republicans, but also for some Democrats, too. Remember, Jake, this was a bill that was supposed to be done one at a time, 12 appropriations bills, supposed to be done by September 30th. That didn't happen. They had to punt until December 16th for a new deadline. That didn't happen. They extended it to December 23rd. And then last night, actually early this morning, 1.23 in the morning, they rolled all 12 appropriations bills into one massive bill, $1.7 trillion worth, more than 4,000 pages. And they plan to push it through Congress in just a matter of a few days. It would fund all federal agencies, including more than $44 billion in aid to Ukraine, have a host of key policy measures, including the reforming the Electoral Count Act to try to prevent another January 6th effort to overturn the electoral results when Congress counts those results. But nevertheless, there is still a lot of criticism from Republicans that this should have been handled differently. It's a discussion that was put out at 128 in the morning. It's three times the size of the Bible. We're expected to read that this week. Oh, it sucks. It's awful. And it's why I'm going to vote against this package. To do it this way, I just think it, it, it erodes what little confidence people have in us. But despite this criticism, the expectation still, Jake, is that this will pass, and it could pass as soon as tomorrow. And one big reason why is that there is a coming snowstorm that could disrupt senators' travel plans, getting back home ahead of Christmas. So there is a push to get this all wrapped up out of the Senate by tomorrow and allow for the Senate to essentially adjourn for the year. Then the House would have to approve it, and that's expected to happen as soon as Thursday. So despite the criticism, this bill expected to become law within days. And, and that's just one drama playing out on Capitol Hill. There's another. Uh, the House Ways and Means Committee is deciding what to do with Trump's tax returns, which it just obtained. What do we know about those deliberations? Yeah, in fact, that's happening in the room right behind me. They've been meeting for more than two hours behind closed doors, the House Ways and Means Committees, Republicans and Democrats, about those several years of Trump tax returns that were turned over to Congress in the aftermath of the battle with the uh, over legal battle that resulted in the Democratic victory here. It is still uncertain, Jake, exactly what the Democrats plan to do with the tax returns. Will they release them publicly? Will they summarize them in some way, put out a report? But their time is limited because Congress, of course, turns over. The House will be turned over to Republicans come January 3rd, and this is expected to be the last week the House will be in session. So there's decision time for Democrats, and we'll see when they come out what they decide to do. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with my august panel, Jackie. The House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, desperately trying to get the number of votes he needs to become the Speaker of the House in the next Congress. He's actually threatening Republican senators, senators saying if they vote for this $1.7 trillion omnibus spending package, that any future legislation they offer will be dead on arrival when it comes to the House. Take a listen to one Republican senator reacting to that. Well, I don't know if I buy the threat, but I find it, Kevin's in a tough spot. Statements like that and statements coming from House Republicans is the very reason that some, de- some Senate Republicans feel they probably should spare them from the burden of having to govern. That's, I mean, this, that. this is the exact irony. The reason that Senate Republicans are coming into this deal with the devil, in their view, is because they look at Kevin McCarthy and his gang of flying monkeys. He's like, they're not going to be able to legislate. Yeah, they're saying, yeah, it was going to be dead on arrival anyway because of the composition of your current caucus, so or conference, rather. But, yeah, I mean, this is the second time McCarthy's kind of tried to flex on Mitch McConnell when he doesn't even have the votes to be speaker. He's having to whip his speaker 
vote in a way that I've never seen. I mean, I yeah. think there's an expectation that there's going to be multiple rounds of voting Definitely. for Speaker of the House. So I just think he's got bigger things to worry about than trying to threaten uh, Senate Republicans. I mean, you saw, I mean, uh, Senator Kramer's not exactly a squish. He's pretty. Oh, he's going to vote against it. Exactly. He's, he's, he's a pretty strong Republican. So the fact that he was like, oh, <laughs> is all you need to know. I mean, I just love that quote. The very reason that some Senate Republicans feel they probably should spare, spare them, them from, from the burden <laughs> of ha- from the burden of having to govern. I mean, that's what you're oh. running for Speaker of the House. Yeah. That's the burden you're trying to get. I think yeah. that you're right about the fact that a lot of these things were already going to be dead on arrival. And Jake, this is just a preview of what's to come in a Republican-run yeah. Congress. They're, on the one hand, Democrats are saying that well. McCarthy's doing whatever he can to become speaker. Okay, but then what happens if he does become speaker? The idea that this is all going to the end and he won't have to satisfy the right anymore. I, I don't know that that's the case. I mean, if he wants to remain speaker, he's still going to have to put up with a lot of, of these demands. And so it's not just fighting uh, between uh, Mitch McConnell and Democrats at this point. You're seeing this interparty fighting. You have folks like Rand Paul who also don't want the defense spending in this. I, this is definitely uh, what you can expect no, more. Republican-run House, Run is doing a lot of work. In <laughs> Democrats are definitely <laughs> popping the popcorn. Uh, And and Ashley, Senator Mitt Romney slamming uh, McCarthy for this threat as well. He said, we're enduring the silly season of a campaign. For most of us, that's over after you get elected. But he's running for Speaker of the House, so the silliness is still evident. I agree with Mitt Romney at this point. That's about as strong (laughs) as Mitt Romney gets, by the way. Yeah, I don't think I've ever agreed with Mitt, but here we are. That's like cussing for Mitt Romney. I mean, I think Kevin McCarthy is doing whatever he can right now to be Speaker, and he thinks he has to play to a part of his caucus, which are MAGA Republicans, that um, he needs to have their support in order to win. The funny thing about it is, like, all of your bills are dead on arrival. You, he must have forgotten what happened in this November election. Democrats still uh, have control of the Senate. <laughs> and so you're saying that any bipartisan bill is dead on arrival. Mm-hmm. So you have no intention to actually do anything for the will of the, the, the American people who barely gave you a majority. And it's like he's missing the mark yet again. And to your point, if this is what we have to live through for however long, if he can even become speaker for his six days or two years of speakership, I don't think it's going to play well for the Republicans yet again. It's, well, so, it's, so, it's so divisive that even Marjorie Taylor Greene, a MAGA Republican, <laughs> and Lauren Boebert, a MAGA Republican, who I didn't even know disagreed on anything. They are now openly feuding uh, because Marjorie Taylor Greene is, for some reason, aligned with Kevin McCarthy. I guess Trump is, too. And Lauren Boebert is part of this, uh, you know, super mega caucus flexing. Take a look. Take a listen uh, to uh, Lauren Boebert. Marjorie Taylor Greene says Kevin McCarthy is going to be a great speaker. I've been um, aligned with Marjorie and accused of believing a lot of the things that she believes in. I don't believe in this, just like um, I don't believe in Russian space lasers. Are you a hard hard no? Space lasers and all of this. So Boebert not only is against McCarthy also is not in favor of Jewish space lasers. Which yeah, is that was a, some shade there. Yeah. Um, listen, as much as I'd like to pop the popcorn and watch this fight, um, it's, it's actually an important point that Lauren, Lauren Bober is um, underscoring, which is the, f- the right flank wants to hold on to the motion to vacate. They want it in the rules package so that they can make Kevin McCarthy's life, frankly, hell Explain going what forward. that is, the motion so to vacate. So it's essentially a procedural tool that allows any sitting member to issue a vote of no confidence at any point. To remove a speaker at any moment. To remove the speaker at any moment. So this is what Kevin McCarthy's living in fear of. If he can magically get to 218, which is an open question, he could end up having one of the shortest speakerships mm-hmm. in history because this will be held over his head. 
Now, how defensive Marjorie Taylor Greene has gotten of McCarthy is fascinating to me. She did a multi-thread tweet defending him, his conservative credentials. That signals to me she has promised something that is strong. She yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Committee assignments, but what else? Because I think it would be more than that for her to put herself so but, far out But there. another point that stands out, though, is that the former president, Donald Trump, is in favor of McCarthy becoming speaker. And yet you still have these Republicans who are, you know, are very loyal to Trump who, who are against it, which also tells you something about where Trump's influence is in the Republican Party at this point, where even he doesn't have the juice necessarily to push you know, McCarthy over the finish line The here. only thing I can think of, which I try to avoid of thinking about the way Mar- Bobart and Marjorie Taylor Greene do, but the only thing I think, can think of is that Bobart is thinking that the extreme of the extreme MAGA Republicans are the ones who saved her seat. It, because she was in a really tough uh, contested election. That's and she the, almost lost. And yeah. she almost lost. And so I think that one, you would think it was so close that you would say, okay, let me kind of teeter more to the middle. Right. But for some reason, I think that made, she was thinking that's the only reason that got her over the finish line. Well, there is part of the MAGA base that doesn't trust any Republican leaders. Certainly not McConnell. And also not Kevin McCarthy, who had a flash of uh, rationale after January 6th and criticized Donald Trump and then quickly got back in the, in the fold. But it is interesting how much Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., that whole group is really pushing Kevin McCarthy, uh, who is, you know, if you remove uh, the last couple of years, like he's pretty much just a traditional country club Republican, Chamber of Commerce Republican. Who will say what it takes to become yeah. Speaker right. of the House at right. this point. So the, but he's not MAG is what yeah, I'm saying. But, but, but what, In his heart. But he, I don't think he has a lot of moorings right now other than, but, but the thing is, I don't know how much power he's gonna, even going to have, particularly if he ends up agreeing to the motion to vacate. Then the Speakership is basically a better office than some tchotchkes. Um, and I think Marjorie Taylor Greene said what she, what she wants, subpoena power. Mm-hmm. She said that in, in, in an interview somewhere. Um, so you have to imagine that... She wants some, to be on oversight, Yeah, right? and, she, and she wants... And, and it seems like... I mean, she, she, she is part of the Mayorkas group. She wants to be able... She wants to impeach the, the Department of Homeland Security mm-hmm. Secretary, yeah. Yeah, and, and so I, I think that, that there, a lot of things have been promised on the investigative. Um, um, it, it's, or it seems clear if they're not being nakedly clear about it. Um, and Realm 2, which is another reason for her, because it gives her more power to back McCarthy, because that's where the promises are. Well, and you can't lose in this moment, too, when we're talking about this massive spending bill, which I, as a conservative, probably take issues with, but, like, we've got to fund the government. It's actually a gift to Kevin McCarthy to get this done in the next two days. The last right. thing, if he, That's right. God, you know, if he does end up becoming speaker January 3rd, the last thing he wants is to be dealing with this in February and punting it to next year. When he's got a slim majority, he's got a right flank that has no business wanting to help him, he's going to have to rely on Democrats to pass it. So he's privately wishing that this bill passes. He just can't publicly say so it. Going back to what you said about Trump, but his stated fear was that if you don't have Kevin McCarthy, then you'll get someone who's more like Paul Ryan, and so you could wind up with someone more moderate. Democrats fear that what will actually happen is you'll wind up with someone far more conservative than Kevin McCarthy, who who won't work on bipartisan legislation with the White House and with the president. And so they're better off with Kevin McCarthy. So that's how he has essentially become the consensus candidate board. But what's his end game? Like, if you flex your muscle now and then it atrophies in like six days in the new Congress because you have to work on a bipartisan basis, like... Nice view in the speaker's panel for a few days. He is only (laughs) thinking in terms of getting 218 votes. Mm -hmm. That's it. No matter how long it lasts. That's that's the only thing he's looking at right now. Thanks to one and all, Congress is on the verge of banning TikTok on all federal government workers' phones. Are TikTok's days in the United States numbered? TikTok. 
the head of TikTok's public policy response. Next. In our tech lead, is the clock running out on TikTok? It could be for federal government employees after Congress included a ban on the app on all U.S. government devices in the latest spending bill, joining a wave of U.S. governors who have done the same for their state employees. They're worried about the popular app's ties to the Chinese government. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle concerned. Listen. TikTok is an enormous threat. This company should be banned. I don't know why they're allowed to operate in the United States. I think it gives the Chinese Communist Party an opportunity to spy on all of us. Today, the company, TikTok, said it will roll out a new feature to add more context about how the app recommends videos. Users will be able to click on an icon and see if a video was recommended based on data, such as your past likes or the region you live in. Joining us now to discuss, Michael Beckerman, TikTok's head of public policy. Michael, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. First of all, what's your response to this bipartisan push to to ban TikTok, especially on government devices? Look, I mean, obviously, this is a very political approach. It doesn't have any real impact on national security. Um, but the concerns they're raising are ones that we think are solvable, um, and we have a really comprehensive solution. And so the better question is um, maybe for the administration on um, enacting a security deal that, that actually safeguards um, information for all Americans. A security deal with TikTok or with, yeah. or with the Chinese government? With, 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 with TikTok. Um, you know, TikTok's not available in China. Um, you know, we think a lot of the concerns are... Um, maybe overblown, but we do think these these problems can be solved. We have a comprehensive solution that we've been working on for almost two years now with the Biden administration, and we're ready to implement it. Um, and I think that's probably the best place to start this conversation. So, well, the place that a lot of these national security experts uh, and members of Congress started is with China's uh, national intelligence law from 2017, as you know, which states, quote, any organization or citizen shall support, assist, and cooperate with state intelligence work in accordance with the law and maintain the secrecy of all knowledge of state intelligence work, unquote, which a lot of national security experts and members of Congress interpret this as saying that this law compels any private company in China to cooperate with Chinese national intelligence any way they want, which means that you sitting here right now, although I'm sure you wish you could, you cannot guarantee that the Chinese government can't get access to the TikTok user database. That's that's what people are worried about. Well, well, no company can guarantee that a state actor can't get access to the company. No, but I mean legally, not through hacking, legally. Sh- sure, but like, what, one thing, like TikTok's not available in China. We have many safeguards in place. Um, but again, if that's the concern, um, there are many companies that this would apply to. But the unique thing for us is that we do have a solution that's ready to be deployed that we've already proactively worked on with companies like Oracle um, to safeguard Americans' user data, and we're ready to do it as soon as um, as soon as the administration is ready to act. But what's the workable solution? How how do you solve it? I mean, I want we had the top Republican commissioner <clears throat> at the Federal Communications Commission, Brendan Carr, on the lead last week. I want you to get your reaction to what he told us about the Chinese government and access to user data. Underneath of it, it operates as a sophisticated surveillance tool. It's pulling everything from search and browsing history, keystroke patterns, potentially biometrics, including face prints and voice prints. And for years, we were told, don't worry, none of this is stored in China. But there was some internal communication from TikTok leaked over the summer that showed, quote, everything is seen back in China. So it's a real concern. Well, I mean, I appreciate I know uh, Brandon Carr has been really interested in this issue for a while. But as you know, he's not on a government agency of jurisdiction over this and he's not an expert and, in fact, all the things that he rattled off are all false about information that we collect. Um, but the one thing that is accurate is we do store 
uh, data here in the U.S., and we're moving things over to the Oracle Cloud. Um, and if this is a concern that people have, we have a solution that we're ready to implement um, to ensure that Americans' user data is protected. Um, what about that doc- the document, the internal communication that, from TikTok that leaked over the summer that showed everything is seen back in China? That's, that's, just not, that's just not accurate. I mean, we have a U.S.-based security team. We're working with Oracle. We're working with actual security agencies within the government. Um, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, and, and a lot of what uh, the commissioner was saying is just not accurate. So there was a, a German report in March of this year showing that TikTok censored references to concentration camps, shadow banning, in their view, words such as Auschwitz or National Socialism. Um, and the fear is the U.S. State Department obviously has accused China of genocide, holding up to two million ethnic Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in con- detention camps, detention camps, concentration camps uh, in the Xinjiang province, and that that's what TikTok was censoring, not necessarily references to uh, the German uh, concentration camps. First of all, do you, do you acknowledge that the Chinese government has these Uyghurs and others in concentra- concentration camps? Well, that's not something that I, that I focus on, but I can tell you that for content moderation is done from the United States. We do not censor content on behalf of any government. Um, you can just go on the app and, and look, and there's, there's, been, there's been plenty of content what on TikTok. What do you mean you, that's not something you focus on? You work for a Chinese government company, and the Chinese are accused of concentration camps and ethnic genocide. You can, you, can look, you can find all this content on TikTok. But why won't, you, why won't you acknowledge that, I mean, I, I, I can. I'm, I'm just not. I'm just not an expert on what's happening in China, so it's not an area that I'm, I'm focusing on. But I, you can look on the app, and you'll find plenty of content about that as well. It's not something that we censor. It's not something that we, we draw back. All of that, those decisions are made from the United States. Well, a viewer might see this and think this guy won't even acknowledge that the Chinese are committing genocide against their own people. Why? You know, they, they, they would probably interpret that to be like you're afraid of being fired if you acknowledge that. That and that's. Jake, that's not that's not that's not accurate, and that's not fair. But I'm just t- do you disagree I, that that's what people how people are going to interpret it? I mean, that's well, I, I can see how that's your, you're interpreting it. I, look, I think there are many human rights violations that are happening in in China and around the world. I think these are very important. I mean, I'm not here to be the expert on on human rights violations around the world. But if you want to look up at that, you can go to TikTok and you can look it up, and you can see m- much information about that as you want. That's not something that's censored by the app. I was, I was responding to your question yeah. about whether or not that content is censored on TikTok, and it certainly is not. So if a U.S. user were to make a video summarizing the 2022 U.N. report, which shows that China may have committed crimes against humanity in Xinjiang province, they would be able to see it? It wouldn't be banned? It wouldn't go, be go shadow banned? Absolutely. Go for it. I mean, that does not violate our content um, guidelines. I can't tell you if you did a video of that, Jake, that would go viral. That's something that people would be interested in. But that doesn't violate our guidelines at all. So there was a 60 Minutes report that I'm sure you saw that showed uh, American kids on TikTok and they were seeing images of self-harm and uh, eating disorders, encouraging, encouraging psychological distress for these kids. And then there's the Chinese version of TikTok, which not, it's not called TikTok, it's something else. And it was educational and there were automatic time limits and somebody, a parent, might see that and think the Chinese government is trying to destroy our kids from within. I'm, I'm just saying, don't you think that that's the impression? I, I think that's one that's a mischaracterization. Like, as a parent as well, we, we do so much. We were talking during the break about parental tools that we have here in the U.S. But it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a little bit of a curious argument. The same people that are complaining about employees in China and access from China, all these things, are also suggesting that here in the U.S. we should imply Chinese-style media rules. Um, we have freedom of speech, other things here in the United States. It's a little bit different. But look, on, on content for kids and for younger people on the app, is something that we take incredibly seriously. All those teams are based here in the United States. 
We have tools for parents. You should have conversations with your teens sure. about screen time. Um, but content that's dangerous like that, I don't think that's a fair characterization of what people are actually seeing on the app. You think that TikTok's getting a really bad rap and a lot of people that are, that are just projecting their concerns about the Chinese government onto, in your view, a harmless app. Is that fair we characterization? T- look, we, we, I mean, we, we take all the concerns seriously. Our goal is to earn trust. We're living in an era now where there are legitimate concerns with all apps, and there should be, about what data is collected, about safety, security. We take those really, really seriously. We've been leaning into transparency. We've been leaning into safety. Um, and the reason that we've been so proactive working with the government on a solution for the security concerns is we want to clear the air about that. We want to raise no, no doubt that the app is safe and secure. So, Michael Beckerman, I have to go because we're out of time, but I hope you'll come back because there are a lot of concerns, and uh, I think it's only fair that you guys get to address them. As I told you, I, I have deleted the app, but I haven't forced my kids to. Uh, and the only reason I deleted it is because national security experts said, you need to get that off well, the phone. we hope to convince you, get you back. All right, Michael Beckerman, I appreciate you coming and taking the, the questions. That's important. Uh, it's going to be freezing across the United States. 50 million people will see temperatures dip below zero. Why this and a possible blizzard could make holiday travel nearly impossible in some parts of the country. Stay with us. Get ready for a polar air mass and powerful winter storm. Our Derek Van Dam is keeping track. Derek, things could get really messy. Yeah, Jake, this is turning out to be a blockbuster of a storm that's right before the busy travel season coming up for the holidays. Right now, we have 70 million Americans under some sort of winter weather alert. By the way, blizzard warnings just hoisted across south-central Minnesota as we speak. Every single state in the lower 48 will feel the effects of this. In fact, below freezing temperatures for all the lower 48 over the next coming days. We have 75 million Americans under wind chill alerts. This is a multifaceted storm, people. It's got the potential for blizzard conditions. We have the potential for flash freezes and the Arctic air that is going to settle in behind it using terminology from the National Weather Service, life-threatening wind chills uh, with the potential to have uh, frostbite and exposed skin in a matter of minutes. Jake. All right, thank you so much. Coming up in the Situation Room, we're waiting to hear what Democrats are going to do with Donald Trump's tax returns. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.